Hey everyone, it's Jacqueline Melanick. Welcome to Chain Reaction, a show that unpacks and dives deep into the latest trends, drama, and news with some of the biggest names in crypto, breaking things down block by block for the crypto curious. Today's guest is Josh Naftalis. He is a partner at the law firm Palace Partners in New York City, where he represents companies, boards, and executives in cases for white-collar criminal defense, regulatory enforcement matters, internal investigations, crisis management, and more. He is also a former federal prosecutor and served over a decade as assistant U.S. attorney in the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Southern District of New York, which we commonly refer to as SDNY. While at the SDNY, he led a number of government white-collar prosecutions and trials, and as a senior member of SDNY Securities and Commodity Fraud Task Force, he handled situations ranging from cryptocurrency, which is our favorite, to inside trading and market manipulation, to corporate and accounting fraud. His work also involved coordinations with other agencies like the SEC, CFTC, and FBI. Josh has tried over a dozen cases, all to successful verdicts and outcomes. He's secured convictions in every federal criminal trial that he has led as the assistant U.S. attorney. So there might actually not be a better person to talk to about the criminal trial that is on all of our minds. As many of our listeners know, I've been talking and writing about the trial of Sam Bankman-Fried, the former co-founder and CEO of FTX, who is on trial for seven charges related to alleged fraud and money laundering at SDNY. We will link a bunch of stories in the show notes for you all to catch up on while the trial is on recess until October 26. But that's a lot of background. Josh, welcome to the show. Thanks, Jackie. I'm excited to be here. We're excited to have you. Shifting into the big topic of the day, SBF's trial. What are you making of the prosecution strategy so far as someone who has worked front and center at SDNY? So I think they're doing exactly as they should in this trial, which is they they opened explaining to the jury that this was a simple case of fraud, a simple case of lies, a simple case of greed. And they have been showing that throughout the trial while avoiding the sort of the nuances and the sort of the confusion that crypto could bring to the trial. They're keeping it as basically a corporate a corporate fraud case as opposed to you know, a confusing crypto case. Mm -hmm. And what about the defense's strategy? Have you been incorporating that or looking at that? So I, I think the defense lawyers are doing a great job. They've been dealt a hard hand, meaning the evidence seems pretty powerful, pretty overwhelming in the government's favor. Uh, and the defense is doing what they can. I think that their best hope is to try to hang the jury. I don't think they're looking for a full-out acquittal. So I, I think that they are actually doing a very good job in the face of some very strong evidence. And can you give us some examples of that, like what they're doing to kind of make it a little more lenient for Sam, perhaps? <laughs> so I think what they're doing is they opened with the the expression that's that's popular in the startup space, building an airplane while you're flying it. Mm. That FTX went from zero to a million in a very short period of time. Things got a little out of control. SBF didn't intend to do anything wrong. And I think that mm -hmm. they've been doing a good job explaining to the jury how this company really exploded. Uh, and they were, they were adding pieces of it, the compliance pieces of it along the way. Whether that works, I actually don't think it's going to work. I, I think it, there will be a conviction. But I think what they're doing is actually explaining the jury what I think everyone would not dispute, that this company really was being built in real time. And taking a step back from all of that, can you kind of walk us through your inner workings while you were at SDNY and how a case like this stacks up against other ones you've been involved with? Sure. So as you mentioned in introducing me in my bio, right? I worked mm -hmm. in the securities unit at the Southern District for seven years. That's the unit that's trying this case. 
and I know the prosecutors who are actually trying it well. They're, they're all great prosecutors. I have nothing but the utmost respect, of course, for the Southern District. I think that they are preparing for this case the way they would any other fraud case, which is they have a lot of evidence to draw from, and they are pursuing the strategy of what's called thin to win, which means, as you, you've probably heard and your listeners have heard, there were millions and millions of documents. There were terabytes of data. The trial was estimated to last six weeks. And look what happened. They've, they're almost done with their case in a matter of two to three weeks. Mm-hmm. So they're putting forward the greatest hits using cooperating witnesses, as you, as you know about. I'm sure we'll talk about it, who are the, the best sort of evidence of, of what happened. And I think that they're treating this case like any other, meaning they're taking it seriously and they're presenting a pretty clear narrative to everyone, including you know, the fact that the average listener or reader knows what's going on means that they're doing their job. How does the fraud in this situation or alleged fraud compare to <laughs> other major cases you've been on and prosecuted? So I, w- I would analogize this case to a typical corporate or accounting fraud, or it, in a way, there's also elements of a Ponzi scheme to it, which is... Mm-hmm. You have two sets of people who are lied to, the investors, meaning the individuals or the companies that were investing in FTX, the entity, and then the customers, the people who are using FTX as, as the clients. And I've tried cases that are like this before, like big accounting fraud cases where lies are being told to the investors and the clients, the shareholders and the clients about how the company operated, what was being done with the money, and then there was misuse of money. So I think it has elements of sort of a classic securities fraud case or corporate mm-hmm. fraud case. The difference, of course, is that this case has many, many zeros attached to it. You know, there were billions and billions of dollars that were allegedly lost. And that's what makes the case, I think, sort of so high stakes for everyone. Would you compare it to something of Bernie Madoff level? In terms of the amount of money involved and the the focus that the SCNY has on it, yes. This is probably the biggest corporate fraud case since Madoff. And in terms of a verdict. Obviously, we are not at that point yet. But how likely is it that Sam Bankman-Fried is going to be found guilty? I mean, no one wants to say it's for sure, but it seems pretty, pretty likely. And okay, let's say he's found guilty. How long does it take from point A to point B, where the jurors find him guilty and then the judge sentences him? What is that process like? So since the defendant's in custody, so he's in jail right now, the soonest he would be sentenced is about three months from now. Oh, wow. It could be that, that's because um, there's a lot of paperwork that needs to be done by the probation department, which is the arm of the court that comes up with a memo for the judge to read that summarizes who the defendant is, what he did, recommended sentences. And then there's also a lot of briefing that will likely happen after this case if there's a conviction, what's called post-trial briefing, where the defense tries to set aside the verdict. Okay. And then not fully comparing this back and forth over and over to Bernie Madoff, but he was sentenced 150 years. Sam Bankman-Fried can face up to 115 if found guilty. How many years do you think it will be based off everything you know so far? So I, I, I think it all depends on whether he testifies and whether the judge believes that he perjured himself. I don't think that this is a life sentence type of case. It's obviously a lot of money that's involved. The difference is that the defendant is significantly younger than Bernie Madoff, and that fraud really was of a longer duration, and there were way more victims in the end. looks like a lot of the money in in this case is being clawed back as well. If the defendant takes the stand and lies, he could expose himself to much more jail time because 
when a defendant testifies, he's not just speaking to the jury, he's speaking to the judge. And if the judge doesn't believe him, he's putting himself in even more harm's way. Mm -hmm. We will definitely get into the idea of whether or not Sam will testify at the end of this. But how does age kind of play into this? You just brought up the differences in age between like Bernie and Sam. Sam was seen as this like, quote unquote, wonder boy, billionaire under 30. Obviously, he's a little over 30 now. And even with Caroline Ellison, the CEO of Alameda and his ex-girlfriend, you know, they're both facing charges. They were both young when this happened. Everyone involved in the executive circle was young. What does that mean kind of for prosecutors looking at this case? Does it kind of change the way you look at it? Do you give a little more leniency? So I think when someone's young, it's a lot harder to say, does this person deserve to spend 60 years in jail? That is an unbelievably long time for a white collar case, which is why I don't think that this the sentence will be anywhere close to that. You don't think it'll be 60 years? No. I think that I, I, it's hard for me to predict, but Madoff got basically 100 and something years in jail. I think that was to send a message that this guy is old. He's likely going to unfortunately die in prison, which he did. So a large mm -hmm. sentence really sent a message. If a, if a judge gave a sentence like that, effectively life in prison, it would be sort of like without comparison for someone of this age. The defense is probably going to say this guy made a terrible mistake. He doesn't deserve to die in prison. And I, th I think that's the kind of argument that actually is fair. And I, don't, mm -hmm. I don't think anyone thinks that this is a, the type of person who is incorrigible in the end and needs to be sort of shut away for the rest of his life. Before the trial started, I was in line with a bunch of other reporters uh, waiting to get into the trial. And we were like, how long do you think he's going to get? Or do you think he's going to be guilty or not guilty? And like by day one, a lot of people felt, <laughs> yeah, it's it's yeah. over. He's going to be found guilty. And it's still up in the air. You know, right. we still don't have that answer. But based on the evidence that prosecutors have brought in, it seems very, very likely that it's going to go that route. And I've heard from other experts who said like it's such a small percentage that he might not be found guilty. But on that front, I just guessed a random number. I thought 27 years. And if that's the case, I'm going to go buy a lotto ticket. But <laughs> you said you don't think it'll be 60. I said 27. After hearing everything I've heard so far, I've honestly kind of upped it internally in my head. I don't know if you have a number based on the cases that you've done in the past that you kind of see this being in the ballpark. You know, I don't have a number in mind because a lot of it really depends. I haven't been there for every second of the trial. And a lot of it really does depend on if he takes the stand. If he takes the stand and lies, then he, his exposure potentially goes up by a lot. But just remember, a day in jail, a month in jail, a year in jail is a long time. So for, for the judge to send a message, it does not need to be decades and decades. It, it's probably going to still be a very substantial amount of time, but I don't think it's going to be like in this 60-year range. I think it's just that's just a lot of time for someone to serve. And we haven't talked about them yet, but looking at the jurors, we've got nine women, three men, and they consist of a broad range of occupations, like a retired corrections officer, a pregnant physician assistant, a stay-at-home mom, a train conductor, a librarian, special ed teacher, and a retired investment banker, to name a few. We also wrote about this, and we'll link that in the show notes. But do you think they're helping or hurting Sam's case? I think they're doing their job. That's a pretty typical sort of juror mm -hmm. pool. Meaning the average American. It's yeah. the average American, the average New Yorker. <laughs> right. Some guys in mm -hmm. finance, some of them who have nothing to do with finance. I think, you know, to the credit of the way jurors are picked in the Southern District, you get a fair jury 
it's pretty hard to read into them based on their occupation. But the idea is to get rid of the people who have a preconceived notion, as you know, right. and just let them hear the evidence. Now, the evidence seems to be particularly strong. So it doesn't really matter who the jurors are, in my opinion. But I, I wouldn't yeah. much into who the jurors are. Okay. And then uh, on that front, how likely is it that they're truly grasping what is being testified by witnesses in the case that the prosecutors are making, especially for those who don't have a finance background? So that this goes back to one of your earlier questions, which is how is the government putting the evidence in? The goal is to make this accessible to the average juror. And that's why I said they're, they're trying to paint a picture of just everyday corporate fraud. It's a huge corporate fraud but an everyday fraud. I think they're able to comprehend. I'm, I'm a big believer in the jury system. They're able to comprehend. You shouldn't lie to your investors. You shouldn't lie to your customers. And you shouldn't take their money to either run your own hedge fund or to buy you know, extravagant apartments or cars or planes that you weren't allowed to. Mm-hmm. They get that. Whether they get the total nuance of how the coding necessarily worked for this, the back door, or they understand exactly how Bitcoin trading or crypto trading really works. Who knows? But I don't know if it really matters either. It's totally fair. All right, Josh, we're going to take a quick break and we will be back with more questions. All right. Welcome back, Josh. And on that front, talking about jurors, we also have witnesses who have been on the stand, ranging from those who pleaded guilty like Gary Wang, Nishad Singh, and Caroline Ellison, all the way to investors and federal agents. How do you think these different types of witnesses are adding to the case that prosecutors are building? So I think this is the the typical lineup that you would expect to see from the Southern District in a big corporate fraud case. They're each playing their role, and I think they're each coming in smoothly. The cooperating witnesses, as you said, are really what everyone wants to see. That's the drama. And it's also the best evidence. Those are the folks that Bankman-Fried allegedly committed this, this series of crimes with, and they're the people he trusted. And that's really mm-hmm. who the jurors want to hear from if they're available. So I think that, as, as you know, you've noted, has been key for them. Three witnesses who have told consistent stories that corroborate each other and that line up with the documents. The other witnesses have been key, too. The other investors, the agents who have traced the money, showing the jurors the other pieces of the crime and how the documents and the money, you know, how the documents show what happened and how the money moved. And then, of course, this is a fraud on people. So you heard from the people who actually got hurt. Mm-hmm. And of those three people, Gary, Nishad, and Caroline, what parts of their testimonies have you found the most impactful? And which parts do you think will resonate the most with jurors? So, I, you know, I think the Ellison's testimony is obviously the one that everyone wanted to hear and has had the most impact. You'll notice that the government called her second. Mm-hmm. They wanted to, I think, call the, the one cooperating witness first to sort of set the stage. Obviously, like that went well. And then she was the main event. And I think what she was able to tell is the defeat the backdoor argument or the hedging piece of it. Oh, we told her to, uh, I, you know, on cross, she was able to hold up to where you were supposed to hedge. I think that was the main event. What was supposed to happen with the Alameda money or not? And then the other two witnesses really dealt with the back door, um, as I understand it. So I think that's what to look for with this. They each had their role, but I think Ellison was most important. And for the timeline for all three of them, they all pleaded guilty. Caroline's facing up to 110 years. Gary is 50 and Nishad is 75. What is the timeline for that? Is that on the hands of the prosecutors to 
kind of package all that up? Do you, they talk to them separately after this testimony? What does that kind of look like? So they'll all be sentenced after, assuming there's a conviction, after the defendant, Bankman-Fried, is sentenced, basically when their testimony is no longer needed. And that will proceed along a slower timeline. But if Bankman-Fried's the last one to be charged, then the government will just want to get the cooperating witnesses sentenced. And I would imagine, as most people have speculated, they won't get jail time. They all came in the door very promptly, and it looks like they've held up their end of the bargain. Oh, so you don't think they would get any of that jail time? Is that common? In a white-collar case where you're a first-time offender as a cooperator, it's pretty typical for the cooperating witnesses not to do actual jail time. Oh, wow. Now, it's not guaranteed. I've had cooperating witnesses who did get jail time, but it's, right. it's the exception, not the rule. Okay. So why do they have those years up to like 110 for, say, Caroline, if it's more common for them to get zero? Is that on the case that they don't tell the truth or that it was so damning that maybe they will get some? No, it's you got it right. It's so that the jury understands that the incentives they have to tell the truth. If they get up there and lie and their cooperation agreements are what's called ripped up, meaning they're voided, they still have exposure of, you know, 100 whatever years in jail. So common sense, right? If it's the options are you could get a real break at sentencing if you tell the truth. If you lie, you could face 100 whatever years in jail. You're going to most likely tell the truth. Hopefully. Hopefully, yeah. yeah that's the goal. <laughs> right. Uh, it's it's interesting you say that because at the end of Gary's testimony, the prosecutors were kind of explaining that he pleaded guilty. He had this cooperation agreement, everything. And they're like, and how many years are you hoping to get? And he said, I'm hoping for like zero. And yep. some people in the room laughed, but I guess that's a reality then. No, it is. It's a reality and it's why you cooperate. Okay. So do you think it's unlikely for all three of them to get jail time based on the testimonies they gave? if they're true, which it seems like they were. Based on what I know, yes. Wow. All right. And I know we've kind of talked a little bit about the coming potential testimony from Sam Bankman-Fried. We are going into the last innings of the trial. Prosecution is wrapping up on Thursday. They said they have about three more potential witnesses. We'll see if they bring them in or not, or how many of them come. But what are you kind of expecting from the defense's case going forward? I know their lawyer said it might take a week if they make a case. I don't even know if the if is genuine. I feel like they like who doesn't make a case was kind of my thought. Well, that's standard for a defense lawyer to say, meaning they're keeping all options open while the government is putting its evidence in. Most defense lawyers and defendants don't have much of a case to present because it's really most of the time they're using the government's witnesses and cross-examining them to put their case in. I think the main event and likely the only witness the defense has is the defendant himself. And I do think he will testify. I think, mm -hmm. as you said, we're in the, the last innings, you know, to switch metaphors. This is like his Hail Mary. Right. What are the types of things you think would help Sam in this situation by testifying? So I think he what he's dealing with is strong evidence, three cooperating witnesses, and just the billions of dollars flying around and all the statements he's made along the way, his tweets, his you know, all the recordings that the government's played, the interviews they've played. This is his opportunity to say, I didn't intend to do anything wrong. I didn't act in bad faith. I was acting in good faith. Things just got out of control. And it's really hard for any defendant to explain to a jury, you know, what's in his head unless they take the stand. It's, of course, fraught with risk. But I think this is his opportunity to say, like, I didn't mean for any of this to happen. That's why I'm not guilty. 
And do you think they'll you know, put him out first or will they have other witnesses testify? And if so, who are these other witnesses that are testifying on his behalf? I mean, he may have some character witnesses, which are sort of... He was a good guy. He was a good guy. Yeah, I've, I've, <laughs> I've known him since I was whatever. We, we Right, right. <laughs> we did this together. He's always been so supportive of me. In terms of people who actually are fact witnesses about what happened, I think really it's him. And do you think they would start with the character people or start with him? Like, what's the typical rotation that you've seen in cases you've done in the past? I mean, usually it's the character witnesses go first, if you're going to call them, because they're still thinking about whether you want the defendant to testify. I think if the defendant ends up testifying, you're not going to see character witnesses. The character witnesses are really in lieu of the defendant testifying, because let's think about it. Character witnesses are saying, like, this guy's a really good guy. I respect him. The jur- if the jury ends up hearing from the defendant, that's what really matters. So you can sort of forego those witnesses. Also, another thing is, so he stands up, says he wants to testify. Does he have the choice to just like be like, no, I don't want to testify anymore? Like if it gets hard for him or he has to do it fully cross-examination, both sides. So the choice as to whether to, to get up there and take the stand is his. It's not his lawyer's, it's his. Once he starts testifying, it's in his control to the extent of the witnesses, the, the, his lawyers, I'm sure, have crafted a direct examination with him. But once it goes to cross, he doesn't get to say, I'm done. It's up to the, the prosecution to finish its cross-examination, you know, subject to whatever the judge says, obviously. But he can't just sort of walk out if he doesn't like how it's going. It'd <laughs> <laughs> be, be a little too easy, wouldn't yeah, it? Right. <laughs> and on that front, with the whole testimony and everything, obviously the defense is going to try and paint him in the light that we talked about earlier, where it's like, oh, it was a startup. It was a plane that was being built while it was flying. What are other types of things you've seen prior defense teams use as a reason for alleged fraud and money laundering that maybe could apply to this case? So I, t- I took a peek at what are called the jury instructions before we, we started up, which are the sort of legal instructions that the judge delivers to the jury. And I looked at the ones that his lawyers just you know, have proposed. And it looks like they are still trying to go with what's called the presence of counsel. It's not advice of counsel, as you may have heard. The fact that he was surrounded by all these high-paid consultants and lawyers means that he was acting in good faith, that he thought that everything was kosher. It doesn't mean he has an affirmative defense, meaning like a legal defense. Like I went to my lawyers, asked them for an opinion, and they said we were okay. I think that's Another argument he's he's still going to try to push. That was the one that Judge Kaplan deferred before the trial. He said the defense couldn't open on this argument, but it looks like the defense may try to go back to that issue. What is something you think the media or people on the passionate crypto Twitter are getting wrong about this trial so far? You know, we're not legal experts. So what is something that you think maybe has been misconceived or falsified floating around about this trial? or just in general about understanding this trial? Sure. We talked about it a little bit at the beginning. I think the two things that people are getting wrong are related, which is the criticism of the judge and the criticism of the defense. You can't get a better judge than Judge Kaplan. I tried a big insider trading case in front of him. I have the utmost respect for him. He's brilliant. Mm-hmm. He is not favoring the prosecution, as some people have said. He is calling it straight. He's doing what he should be doing, allowing the evidence in that's supposed to come in, and keeping the evidence out that's not supposed to come in. Now, the fact that that may be perceived to hurt the defense doesn't mean he's has his thumb on the scale. It means he's doing his job. Right. Similarly, a lot of the people in the crypto Twitter world are saying the defense lawyers are fumbling the ball. They're not doing a good job. They're not landing blows on the witnesses. Again, 
they have a really hard job because the evidence is so strong. And Mark and Chris, who are SDS lawyers, are amazing lawyers. And they're doing exactly what they should be doing. They're trying to chip away at the credibility of certain witnesses. They're getting in the facts they need to make their alternative argument. And again, I don't think they're going for an acquittal. I think they're going for a hung jury. So I think that the, the crypto world, the crypto Twitter world, doesn't quite understand how strong the government's case is and how good a job the judge is doing and how good a job the defense lawyer is doing. All that said, okay. I think there's going to be a conviction, but that's through the strength of the evidence. It's not because mm-hmm. the judge or the defense lawyer are doing something they shouldn't be doing. Right. Is there a chance for Sam to plead guilty or is it too late? Like if he decides to his lawyers, let's say over this recess period, hey, I think we should change our minds or you can't once you start a trial. No, you can do it. You can you can plead guilty whenever you want. Um, my mm-hmm. guess is that he won't be offered any sort of deal. Mm. If he did that, what he would do is what's called eating the indictment, which means he would be required to plead guilty to every charge in the indictment. At this point, this late in the trial, I'm not sure he would get any real benefit. The reason why you would do it potentially is so you could argue to the judge he's accepted responsibility, he should get a lighter sentence. But since we're in the whatever inning, the seventh inning, <laughs> I'm not sure we've really saved... It's a little that. too late yeah, to I'm not really sure we've yeah. saved any one time. Um, yeah. But I, I think the opportunity for him to get some deal from the government is long past. Well, Josh, my last question for you is, what should our listeners look for going forward in regards to this trial? I think that the most interesting thing for them is, as, as we've talked about, whether the defendant takes a stand. If he does... It's pretty rare for a white-collar defendant to do it. You know, as we talked about, I think this is what he has to do, given his personality and the strength of the case. And the question is going to be, can he deliver on his direct examination and get his story out there? And again, how does Cross go? It it could be a total nightmare for him. But I think that's really the last most interesting thing for the, the listeners. All right. Josh, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. We'll be back next week with conversations around what's going on in the Web3 world with top players in the crypto ecosystem. You can keep up with us on Spotify, Apple Music, or your favorite pod platform and subscribe to our companion newsletter, also called Chain Reaction. Links to the newsletter and the stories we talked about can be found in our show notes and be sure to follow us at Chain underscore Reaction on Twitter. Chain Reaction is hosted by myself, produced by Maggie Stamets and edited by Kelf. Bryce Durbin is our illustrator and Henry Pickovet manages TechCrunch audio products. Thanks for listening. See you next time.